I'm Liz Doherty, and this is the Princeton Alumni Weekly's podcast, where we interview members of the Princeton community. Peter Pettibone, Princeton Class of 61, Jeff Burt, Class of 66, and Jim Hitch, Class of 71, might know a bit more about the war in Russia and Ukraine than the average Princetonian. All three headed up the Russian and Soviet practices of the international law firms where they were partners. And over time and travels, they got to know the people in those countries very well. In the past few years, they've written and spoken in various formats about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And on this episode of the podcast, they have a message. The threat of nuclear war, they say, is very real. So hi, Jeff, Jim, and Peter. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your expertise. Would each of you very briefly explain your work with Russia and the former Soviet states? I'll begin. Uh, 50 years ago, in uh, the fall of 1973, I formed the U.S.-Soviet Trade Council. It was its outside council for the 20-plus years of its existence. I opened my first law office in Russia in 1991, and uh, it grew quite a bit over the ensuing 20 years. to an office that had about uh, 60 people in it. Um, I retired in 2010 uh, after serving in that office and um, became an arbitrator. And I've arbitrated commercial disputes involving Russian, Ukrainian parties with their Western counterparties in Moscow, Kiev, and Stockholm. And obviously the war in Ukraine has had a significant impact on that, but I continue to be active in that field. Um, This is Jeff Burt. Early in my career at Arnold Reporter, an international law firm based in Washington, I developed an expertise in international joint ventures, primarily representing Japanese firms. Um, I authored a textbook and taught a course on international joint ventures. When Mikhail Gorbachev became general secretary of the Communist Party in uh, 1985, uh, he reached out to the West and um, decided international joint ventures would be the format for cooperation with the West as he tried to institute his uh, perestroika programs. Uh, I and a partner were invited to Moscow in the fall of 1986, just after Gorbachev came to power, to give a lecture to um, Soviet bureaucrats on how to institute a law to invite Westerners to uh, the Soviet Union for joint ventures. Um, Out of that experience um, at the very beginning, Um, I began representing some Western firms interested in joint ventures, and we opened an office in um, in 1990, one of the first law firms to do so. Um, And uh, that launched my uh, experience in helping Western companies uh, establish businesses in the Soviet Union and also representing some Soviet entities and later Russian entities. Basically, that uh, started a, a long involvement in Russia Uh, which has continued until this day. Uh, During the last several years before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, I taught some courses at Moscow's largest university, Law University, and made many friendships and um, until uh, the disaster of February 2022, um, Russia was a big part of my uh, uh, retirement career. I'm Jim Hitch. I'm class of 71 Princeton. Uh, I uh, opened the office of Baker and McKenzie uh, 
in Moscow in 1989. Uh, and then from that, we opened offices in Kiev, St. Petersburg, Almaty, and Baku. Uh, my last 14 years of my career, I spent in Russia and Ukraine. I was a managing partner of the, of the St. Petersburg office from 97 to 2001. And then I moved down to Kiev and was there from 2002 to 2011. So I saw had some interesting experiences, especially during the Orange Revolution in Kiev. And the, the best part was all of the attorneys that I dealt with, I was the only foreigner. So I had 25 lawyers in St. Petersburg and 95 in Kiev until the global crisis came in 2008 when I retired in 2011. So it's been an interesting career spent with Russia, Ukraine, and these other Soviet states. So let's just dive into the big question here. Do you think this conflict is going to escalate into nuclear war? And what do you think could make the difference of whether Putin takes it there or not? I'll begin. It's Peter Pettibone, um, class of 1961. Uh, this has been the big question. As you probably know, Russia and the United States control 90% of all nuclear weapons. And Russia's share of that is approximately half. So 45% of all nuclear weapons in the world are in Russia. Now, we've been concerned as a country uh, with the possibility of escalation. It hasn't happened yet, and we uh, cannot give an answer of whether it will or will not, but it is certainly on the table. There are questions as to whether there are red lines. Is, for example, uh, Crimea a red line? If Crimea is uh, evaded by the U Ukrainians to take it back to Ukraine as it originally was, is that going to cross a red line? We don't know. But it is certainly there. Um, the, the fact that it hasn't been invoked uh, actively is not an answer that it will not be. Yes, and, and I agree with Peter that nobody knows for sure. But my my feeling is that Putin doesn't have the only decision here, that he has his uh, generals around him, the various political elites in Russia. There's such a fear, I believe, even on the part of Russia, that if they start bombing nuclear weapons into Ukraine, uh, the eastern border where they, they they have territory dispute that is disputed now, won't there be some radiation blowback onto Russia itself? So I think it's going to really be difficult for there actually to be a nuclear escalation, even just tactical nuclear weapons. It's it's really a red line to cross for Putin too. I want to give a slightly longer answer. Uh, a month ago, the three of us made a presentation to the class of 66 in a series that uh, the, um, our class sponsored for about a year and a half. And we spent an hour and a half on this very subject. And so I just want to take a minute to answer a critical question that's necessary to think about when you think about your question, Liz. And that's, why did Putin do this? And what was his motivation? What are we dealing with here? And uh, as I explained, uh, we explained at some length, there are three things you have to understand to evaluate that question, which is why he did it and what is Putin about here? And the first question is, um, what does he think he's doing here? Um, in uh, the, the summer of uh, 2021, uh, he published a three uh, 5,000 page essay, which he directed should be given to all Russian soldiers 
this was the time when he was coming to his final stage of his thinking on why he needed to invade Russia. This was a deliberate, well thought through plan, which he hoped he could accomplish in a matter of a few days. And in this 5,000 page essay, he explained why Ukraine has to go. And he called his essay, which he said he authored himself, on the historical unity of Russians in Ukraine, the Ukrainians. And he said, basically, Ukraine doesn't exist. They're all Russians. It's part of the Russian community. And this group in the territory of Ukraine has stolen Russian land that it was, that was uh, engineered uh, by the West. And indeed, it goes back several centuries because Ukraine never existed. And uh, basically, it's a, and this was characterized as such by international experts, a genocidal program to get rid of the idea of Ukraine as such. He has invested an enormous amount of psychological energy. He's put his future at stake with the idea that it's important Russia conquers Ukraine and Ukraine does not exist anymore as a people. Um, and you combine this with his self-image, uh, which has also been well-documented. He considers himself to be the modern Peter the Great, the man who forged the Russian empire. He considers this territorial grab not as something he's reaching out to, but something he's trying to recover. It belongs to him. And uh, for that reason, when you think about the prospect of a nuclear holocaust, um, you have to consider how deeply committed he is to this campaign. And uh, one uh, uh, leading expert in this area said that Putin is committed by whatever means are necessary. I'm quoting from his piece in Foreign Affairs recently, whatever means are necessary to succeed. Um, in that context, uh, I think you have to consider uh, the consequences to Putin of giving up on this campaign. It would mean the end of his career. It would mean more than embarrassment. It would be basically uh, giving up his dream. And uh, in terms of how far he's willing to go right now, Putin does not feel he needs to use nuclear weapons so we can relax for a moment. But if he's losing, if he's going to have to face the consequences of the American uh, investment and 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 uh, trying to defend and have Ukraine recover its land, um, uh, all bets are off. And I think that the prospects are very real. Um, uh, and and I'm not the only one. David Petraeus and others have said if he uh, thinks he's going to lose, and it's not going to be this year, but it could be next year, um, uh, we just don't know what's ahead. And the prospects are very real. And uh, Biden realizes that and why he has been very cautious as he slowly escalated the armaments to Ukraine. Um, and where this will all come out, uh, I don't think nobody really knows. Do any of you have anything to add to that, Peter or Jim? Uh, just the quip that uh, I've used uh, in the past, that while Putin thinks of himself as Peter the Great, Peter the Great opened Russia to the West at the beginning of the 18th century, while Putin is closing Russia to the West in the first part of the 21st century. When we talk about this, it seems like we're in a catch-22. We don't want Putin to win, but if he doesn't win, he might pull out the nuclear weapons. So where do we go with that? It's Peter Pettibone again. Uh, I have been a proponent of the Korea-type solution. We've already seen uh, the, the war of the last almost 12 months uh, reach a stalemate point. There have been very few territorial gains either by the Ukrainians or by the Russians. That's not to say that the, the new weapons coming in will change that, but at least at the present time, the conflict has pretty much stalemated. 
And you may recall that uh, the Korean War ended 70 years ago without any peace treaty. It just came to an end after discussions. Uh, that could happen here. That could happen that uh, the the parties stalemate along um, a, a line that's fairly much the same as it is today. There is no peace treaty. There is no recognition of that line as creating international borders. Uh, the parties can, certainly the U.S. will take the position that, that these lands are illegally occupied, just as we took the position that the Baltic states did not belong to the USSR for the period from uh, 1941 to 1991. Uh, that could be the, the solution. And uh, it is not a, a solution that requires either side to recognize that it is won or lost. It is just that the situation stalemates. Following that, clearly, there would have to be uh, forces, Western forces in Ukraine to prevent a resumption of the war. But at least it would bring the killing, which is at a horrendous rate at this point, come to an end. So it is a possibility. It, it, it means, as I say, that no one has to acknowledge victory or defeat. It just says that it ends and it ends where it ends. I'll say briefly that things are not good in Ukraine. We see that every day. They're also not good in Russia. The, there's a popular feeling growing that this war is not good. It's not just the moms back in Afghanistan with their boys coming back. The sanctions are starting to have an impact. There's inflation. Uh, the, there's a worldview that maybe Russia is no longer the, the right party in this fight. So we don't think that I don't think there'll be any uprising from the people. It's not in the Russian way. There certainly could be a palace coup of some sort, some other power, uh, some other leader who feels that he or she is the same uh, strength, the same uh, political influence that Putin has that could ease him out if the war got to be really bad. On the other hand, Ukrainians, this is an existential crisis for them. And there was no unity in Ukraine when I went there in, in 2002. The people in the East didn't like the people in the West and their differences in languages, starting with the incursion of Russian troops into Ukraine, even before the actual invasion. Ukrainians realized this is us. Or it's all over. And they've united. And now with this leader they have in Zelensky, it's going to be equally hard for him to back down. Uh, maybe a compromise will be reached. I always thought that if they really were successful in this counteroffensive, Russia will be pushed out the door. Maybe they'd be willing to give up Crimea. Now it's not so clear because Ukraine's not winning. New weapons are being introduced. Weapons the U.S. is giving that could actually bomb inside Russian territory. So I've always agreed with Peter's comment that this will be decided on the battlefield. But I do believe that there's a possibility for, for Russia not to fight us out to the bitter end. And the fact that Ukraine will be biting its lip or biting it, you know, its tongue, but they will ultimately have to reach some sort of settlement, whether it's a Korea style settlement or not. May I just add one further comment, which is that it, it puzzles me greatly that the oligarchs who have lost their markets in the West, uh, their markets for petroleum products and other products, and are now uh, selling those at a significant discount to China and to India, 
that they haven't revolted. Uh, and also, uh, the patriarch lost at least 40% of his Orthodox adherents when the Russian Orthodox Church in, in Ukraine moved over to be the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, no connection with Russia. So it seems to me that, that certainly the patriarch ought to be very unhappy losing 40% of his adherents. The oligarch should be very, very unhappy at losing lucrative markets in the West. And with no sight that there's any uh, development that would turn those things around. There are a lot of factors at, at play here, and it's sort of difficult to, to uh, sort it out. But just three points. Um, apparently, the administration has been telling Congress that the way it's going the U.S. commitment is a three to five year enterprise. Uh, and it kind of takes us aback. Imagine three more years, five more years of this. Um, how this plays out is partly going to depend on what happens in the battlefield, which Peter has made a point of many times. Uh, right now, it appears the Ukrainians think that they may have a slight edge, but it's it's uh, not clear. Um, Putin is sitting back figuring all he has to do is wait because uh, there's no way the West will continue this kind of support three to five years. And of course, uh, there's Mr. Trump on the scene. Uh, if he should uh, become the president and in, in, in next year, uh, the dynamics uh, change dramatically and uh, Ukraine will have to sue for peace as best it can. The second point is in 13, there was a poll that showed that the majority of Ukrainians had a favorable position of feeling towards Russia. Uh, the more recent polls show 2% of Ukrainians have that. Um, so the, the seeds that have been created here um, uh, uh, are going to, I won't say blossom, but uh, how the future will play out given what Russia has done. And we have to remember uh, they've, uh, the casualties are at least 200,000 Ukrainians, enormous number. And the infrastructure, the damage, it's a tens of billions, if not a trillion dollars of damages. So how this will all play out uh, is, is anybody's guess. Um, and the question also, of course, is how long Putin can continue this enormous train on the Russian resources. Um, and uh, the uh, latest casualties indicate that as many as 100,000 Russians have been killed uh, and many more maimed. So it's a very unstable situation. Uh, I, for one, think the uh, Korean solution uh, doesn't won't work out here because of the length of the borders. And also currently Russia has 22% of the territory of Ukraine. And we can't, as the West and as Europe, uh, let this end up with what appears to be a Russian victory. And it would be a Russian victory if they keep all the territory they've gained um, and then continue to eat away at uh, Ukrainians uh, uh, and uh, uh, independence in the years to come. So uh, Liz, the, the, the short answer is, I think it's, it's, it's an unknown territory and a lot will depend what happens in the coming uh, months and what happens in the battlefield. So since we first started talking about this podcast, there's been a major shift in the world. And of course, I'm talking about the outbreak of violence in Israel and Gaza. How do you think it could affect the war in Ukraine? And Jeff, you probably have additional thoughts since you were actually in Israel on October 7th, the day that Hamas attacked, right? Not to 
say that being in Israel on October 7th with my family and my three grandchildren, 11, 13, and 9, uh, gives me any greater expertise, but it does give me a, a, a emotional connection with the horrors of it. Uh, I was fortunate that I could leave two days later through a creative a travel agent and take a 26-hour uh, ride through Ethiopia to get out of there. Um, but I think there is a, a clear connection, and indeed, um, President Biden, in his uh, amazing address last Thursday, uh, gave it a direct connection. He said that America now confronts two evil, and he called it unadulterated evil in the case of, um, of, of, of Hamas, but he applied it as well to Russia. Because if you take a step back, I mean, what has Russia done here in Ukraine? Uh, a, a peaceful country that had no threat to, to Russia uh, was suddenly invaded uh, by 100,000 plus troops. Um, uh, uh, tens of thousands of people have been killed. Uh, homes have been destroyed. Uh, um, the civilian casualties are much greater than they were on October 7th. Uh, and what we're witnessing in the West uh, as as Biden outlined it, is uh, a war against tyranny and tyrants uh, and terror. Because what Putin has done in Ukraine is precisely what Hamas is doing in Israel, is inflicting an, an enormous amounts of death and destruction um, on, on uh, people who uh, don't deserve it. Um, so uh, uh, the American policy has now tied and linked um, Israel's uh, defense of its territory with Ukrainian defense of its territory uh, and uh, the hundred billion dollars that's now on the table in Congress is designed to both uh, help uh, Ukraine resist and also help Israel resist. And so he has conflated the two as part of his, America's moral mission in the world. And this is now a clash of ideologies uh, it's a, as we discussed earlier, Putin has an ideology to wipe the Ukrainian people off the face of the earth. Um, and he does it by denying the existence of the Ukrainian people. Uh, and there's a similar, frankly, ideology that we're seeing in efforts to destroy Israel. Uh, and by conflating this, uh, Putin has made this a, a dual enterprise of the American public uh, to defend America's democratic values and defend countries who wish to exist uh, without being invaded. So uh, I think there's now a link and we'll have to confront it. Um, I think it, in a sense, will help Ukraine, um, uh, which is good, um, but it also complicates matters because now this is more of a global struggle that uh, Biden has identified. Uh, it's, it's kind of a new world and a, a new terrifying world um, because the Middle East also uh, has uh, such deep problems in, in the amount of firepower with Iran and the other countries uh, in this, uh, uh, this quagmire. Um, it, it's something America can't ignore. And, um, so uh, that's my short, uh, and, and I, I can tell you, um, as somebody who never was in a war zone before, um, it's, uh, it's an experience that no one wants to live through even when you're protected because you can get out of there because you have the resources. May I make two comments? It's Peter. Uh, first is that uh, the events in uh, Gaza and Israel are solidifying the, uh, the new uh, grouping of Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. 
uh, you could almost make a contiguous border around those four countries. All of them are helping each other in one way or another, certainly in the war in Ukraine, and also it appears possibly in the uh, the Gaza uh, invasion. Uh, the other comment is that uh, I hope that uh, that the aid package can stay as a unitary package. Uh, as we know, there have been a number of uh, representatives in the House who have expressed uh, questioning uh, uh, issues regarding the aid to Ukraine. By tying them together, that is to say with aid to Israel, which is uh, almost universally approved, um, it, it may be helpful for the aid package to Ukraine. I just hope that the fusion of, of those two packages stays as a unitary package and isn't broken up. Yeah, I want to agree with Peter on that. In particular, I think there was a little starting to bit Ukraine fatigue once again in the U.S. And I think this uh, idea that Biden put forward saying that, hey, they're alike, so different in so many ways, but it's tyranny. It's democracy. It's not just Russians against Ukrainians in some distant country. It's not just the Hamas coming into Israel. It's more to it than that. This certainly will help Ukraine, in my opinion. Uh, already there's uh, a lot of talk. I looked at the New York Times this morning. The headlines, there are three or four just on the issue of, uh, well, if money goes to uh, Israel, is enough money left for Ukraine? What about weapon systems? If there's a competition for one weapon system that both countries need, even though the wars are very different, how will that be dealt out? Uh, Tim Scott. Uh, South Carolina senator has said, oh, there's a difference between Israel needs USAID immediately, and we need to have a longer discussion about how how much more we give to Ukraine. It's better than the, the, the situation before the uh, the news of the Israel Israeli problem, because now the focus is back on Ukraine in a different way. Is there going to be enough money for Ukraine and Israel why are we giving money to Israel? Oh, America always supports Israel. But yes, is there more than just Israel? Is there a deeper meaning that I think Biden successfully portrayed to the U.S.? How it plays out in Congress. And we had a discussion earlier without a speaker in the House. How does this legislation get to the floor? Uh, when are we going to have an aid package? What's going to happen in the meantime? And maybe make a point I was thinking about earlier, Liz, was that one thing the U.S. did do, one thing Biden did correctly, was bring NATO together, bring NATO to the forefront, bring NATO, make NATO important again. Maybe Trump will be elected and he'll sort to, again, try to dismiss the value of NATO. But I think Europeans now, it's not just going to be the Balts and the Poles who are bordering on Russia. It's all of Western Europe, Germany, France, Netherlands, Sweden. They're all talking about why it's important to have a united front against Russia and how NATO is the best uh, delivery system for that. So this is, I think, progress uh, that will help Ukraine ultimately, uh, but before the U.S. Uh, Congress and Senate can work out how they're going to deal with Israel on how they're going to deal with Ukraine. One thing I'd just like to add, uh, um, imagine a few years ago, 
thinking of Finland joining NATO. Imagine Sweden joining NATO. Just today, you've seen Turkey has now withdrawn its objection to Sweden joining. So we have seen, by virtue of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, a enormous change in the whole European uh, framework and the future there, because Europe, Sweden and Finland and all these other countries now realize that Russia is an imminent threat and they have to unite to collectively fight what's happening uh, in Ukraine. It now is the center really of Europe's future. And in terms of how this all plays out, Europe cannot afford to let Russia win the war in Ukraine. They cannot permit it and it will not happen uh, absent something uh, terrible on the battlefield. From your perspective, and you've been following the news very carefully, and you have all of this personal experience with these countries, what do you wish people knew about or understood about everything that's happening here? Okay, I'd like to take a shot at that uh, as my uh, more recent experience dealing with young people at this prominent uh, law school. And indeed, just yesterday, I got a uh, WhatsApp long uh, email from one of my students he is learning English uh, and he's taking additional lessons. He sees the future uh, for him and many of his classmates of democracy. He sees a future uh, having uh, the kind of lifestyle that we have here. These are lawyers and they are committed to a rule of law, uh, committed to a judiciary. Uh, the values that we have been pursuing uh, around the world are very attractive to many young people. And they are necessarily in today's Russia keeping their mouths shut. And indeed I've advised all my former students, I'm no longer dealing with them for the reasons of the war, uh, to uh, wait it out, to hope for the best and to hope that the Putin effort to restore Stalinism, because that's what's at issue here, going back to Stalinist days fails. So the Russian people, Many of them, the faculty members, many of the students, indeed, I think uh, perhaps most of them, do not want a Putin type of Russia. They do not want it. Uh, right now, they have no choice. Um, and the Russian people and uh, Peter and, 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 and Jim, who've uh, spent uh, so many years there as well, are uh, people not that different from, <laughs> from, from you and me, uh, not that different from the law students at our various law schools. They want a better life. Uh, they don't want to take over Ukraine. Uh, they don't want a Peter the Great. Um, they want a world more like, not more like, like the ones that you and I enjoy. So what I'd like the listeners uh, to realize that at this point in time, don't identify the Russian people with what Putin is doing. Uh, Putin has been called a rogue um, a leader. And I think history will decide that he's a rogue leader uh, and that the Russian people deserve a better future than what we see now and what Putin and his small band of people now in control uh, are, are foisting on the Russian people. Yeah, let me follow up on Jeff because he stole a little bit of my thunder. I mean, call me sentimental. I My wife is a Russian and, you know, the Russians and the Ukrainians were, were like Americans and Canadians. You know, there, there were differences but they, many of them all spoke Russian. They had a common culture with Tchaikovsky and Dostoevsky. And Ukraine as a country 
I've said this and other Ukrainians have disagreed with me. I don't think Ukraine as a country realized its own nationhood until this all started. As I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of antipathy. When I had my attorneys in the office between the Russian-speaking Ukrainians and the Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians, Ukraine was a diverse, divided-up country, and, and people just didn't realize, ah, we are a country, we are a nation, we have a border, we have our own rights, we have our sovereignty. It wasn't until the, the, the Russian bear got provoked. It wasn't until there was a, a election where uh, Viktor Yanukovych was coming in and he was going to not allow Ukraine to become part of the EU, part of the EU Association Agreement. When Ukrainians decided, we don't want to be part of the East. We want to be part of the rest, West. And there's so many families. Maybe it's like the old uh, religious problems you had in Ireland or, or, you know, Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, where there are families in Ukraine where the father was Russian speaker, the mother was Ukrainian speaker. What were the kids? They were both. So I think if people knew how close the Ukrainians and the Russians were before all of this started, how this initial provocation has brought the Ukrainians closer to saying, just like a Canadian, I love America, but I don't want to be a U.S. citizen. Ukrainians loved Russia. They had trade, they had commerce, they had common history, as Peter said, common religion. But now Ukraine wants to be independent. And the Russians I know don't want to have Ukrainians dying in the field from bombs coming from Russia. The, the bad guy here is Putin, and there's no doubt about that. I want to add to what uh, Jim and Jeff have said uh, and, and concentrate on the younger people. All three of us have had extensive business contacts in Russia. I had a, a law firm there for 20 years, uh, and uh, I was the only American uh, for most of the, the time there. And so all the others were Russian. We worked together in a very cooperative, uh, ethical, and uh, uh, with views that are uh, very, very similar. And I uh, know that they all want to have a, a life that is free from conflict, that they can uh, raise their families in peace, that they can visit Western Europe, they can attend universities around the world. Uh, and that is not possible now. Um, so I, I think we, uh, I, I certainly want to support what uh, Jeff said, that we should not conflate the Russian people with the uh, with Putin's regime. It is uh, uh, if, if this thing can be brought to an end, hopefully uh, in Russia, uh, the situation will be such that people can once again espouse uh, ideals uh, towards peaceful resolution of conflict, uh, getting along with one's neighbor, uh, raising families, traveling uh, throughout the West. Uh, hopefully we will be there. We're certainly a long way from it now. And uh, the, the clouds in the sky, unfortunately, are quite dark. But uh, hopefully there's a silver lining somewhere. All right. Well, thank you to all three of you for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been wonderful and really informative and interesting. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Liz. You.
Pawcast is a monthly interview podcast produced by the Princeton Alumni Weekly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can read transcripts of every episode on our website, paw.princeton.edu. Music for this podcast is licensed from Universal Production Music. 